You are listening to the Testudo Times Podcast Network. Hey guys, and welcome to the latest Testudo Times Outtakes Podcast. I'm your host, Lila Bromberg, here with my co-host, Matt Levine. And today we're joined by for- former Terp and 2010 Walter Payton Man of the Year, Madhu Williams. What's going on? How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Doing pretty good. What are, what are you doing to stay busy, stay sane during during uh, this time? <laughs> oh man, um, one I'm protect. I'm practicing social distancing, and I'm trying to be as safe as possible, like everybody else. And um, having I never knew I can grow a beard, but <laughs> I've been able to grow a beard, which is first the first in my life. Um, but beyond that, I'm I'm just grateful to to be able to do the little things, uh, considering what's happening in the world and um, globally, and just to put things in perspective that um, I'm just, I'm blessed and uh, just taking it easy, just like everybody else. So let's start with your early years. You were born in Sierra Leone and then you moved to Maryland when you were just nine years old. What was that experience and transition like coming to the United States at such a young age? Uh, man, Matt, it was, it was rough. It was rough because I didn't, I spoke English, but I didn't know any of the slang and I spoke too proper. And I used to get made fun of just because I grew up in Sierra Leone. We wore uniforms to school every day and we had to wear like a sweater or a sweater vest. But when I came here, I still carried on those same things, but I went to public school and I used to get made fun of a lot because I was always the preppy kid. And it was one of those things was kind of weird because it was what I was used to. And uh, but needless to say, it was a transition, but I had great teachers early on that kind of encouraged me. And I was able to make friends after about a couple of months. And uh, I think my parents, especially my mom, was, was, was even more instrumental in keeping me focused on making sure academically I'm prepared and and I'm grateful for uh, just the opportunity to to start something new, start a new life. And then, you know, you grew up playing football in this area. There always seems to be, you know, an ongoing debate about what state or area produces the best football <laughs> talent. And it seems like the DMV often gets overlooked in that discussion. What do you think sets, you know, this area apart just in terms of the football talent that it produces? Well, part of the reason why that, in my opinion, that sets this this uh, area apart with talent is because there's so much talent in both in more than one sport. Some areas you always hear Florida, Texas, California, predominantly are you know they always say huge football. Ohio, Pennsylvania, huge football state. Maryland is a football state and a basketball state. And there's so many talent. There's so much talent between those two sports that oftentimes a kid has to make a decision whether he's going to play football or basketball which is not always the case in some of those other states that um, I mentioned earlier. But I think the grassroots programs in this area are pretty strong. We have strong coaches who are developing kids at an early age. Uh, but more importantly, I think um, the dedication to the student athlete as they uh, develop from high school to uh, Pop Warner to high school, and also as they get to college um, has put Maryland on the map. And I think the byproduct has always been how are those players developing in a bigger stage? And we've had a plethora of uh, 
of athletes who have gone on and done great things, not only in the NFL, but also in the NBA. So you went to Duval High School about 15 minutes away from College Park, obviously grew up in Lanham, and then you go to Towson for your first two years. Then you transfer to Maryland. So did you always know that you were, or you always wanted to end up as a Maryland Terrapin? You know what the thing is, Matt? Um, I was actually recruited by Maryland um, in high school, uh, but I wasn't. It came down to, like Locks always said, it came down to that I wasn't offered a scholarship because I was still developing. I wasn't big enough and fast enough yet. But I actually attended Maryland camp as a junior, and I actually thought I did really well, and I performed amicably enough to uh, earn a scholarship. But needless to say, I wasn't offered a scholarship, and I ended up attending Towson. But I think it was the best decision that ever happened in my life because if I would have went to, and I don't like to think about would have, could have, should have, because I'm grateful for what happened, but. I don't think I was prepared to come into the University of Maryland. Um, I was still, I needed a, I needed to play. I needed more experience because I only started playing football in the ninth grade. So by the time I, and it is the, this is the neat part. I didn't actually, I started playing ninth grade. I never played on my JV team. So I don't even count my first year of playing football. I was just suit. I was learning how to put on a helmet and the shoulder pads. So that don't count. I actually started playing football my sophomore year in high school. Oh wow! That was the first time I actually got on the field and actually played against another opponent. My entire freshman year, I was learning the rules of football because I had never put on pads before. And um, so by the time I got to Maryland, if I would have gotten to Maryland as a freshman, that would have been my third year actually playing football. I don't think I would have been ready. So I would have been registered anyway. So the best thing that could have happened, happened. Whereas they didn't offer me, I had to go to one double A, but the difference between going to one double A and coming to Maryland and having a red shirt, I actually got on the field and played, which is what I needed. I needed more experience to perfect my skills. I needed more hours to become proficient in football and being red shirt and being a red shirt. Yes, you practice, but there's nothing like the game experience. There's no substitute for it ever. So needless to say, I'm grateful that I went to Towson. I played two years as a starter and I was able to get those, those hours underneath my belt. And so fast forward to two years, two years after um, going to college, I was able to transfer back to Maryland. And at that time I felt as though that I could, I I felt good about myself and where I was at because athletically I was bigger, I was faster, I was stronger, and I was more developed in the sense that I had more hours underneath my belt to compete at the ACC level at that time. Right, and in terms of competing at that level, I mean, you were a two-time All-ACC selection, were you know, part of the Peach Bowl Championship, and were able to solidify yourself as, you know, one of the best safeties in the ACC in the country. Like, at the time, did you think all of that was possible when you transferred? You know what? Not to sound arrogant or cocky, I thought I was the best football player in the state of Maryland when I came out. I just didn't have the opportunity. I went to a school in Duval High School where we didn't win a whole lot of games, but that's no excuse. But I felt like the work that I put in prior to my senior year going into my junior year, 
all of those things were going to come out at some point. And I put in the work, like you always hear athletes talk about the reason why I felt so strongly about I was ready for Maryland the second time around is because I put in the work early on. The roadmap was, I mean, the work has already started prior to even coming to Maryland. I think it was just a matter of the, the opportunity to showcase what I can do. And I just had a burning desire and a sense of urgency to just show everybody, especially in front of my family and friends who were locally, uh, who saw it before everybody else believed and saw what I could do. They saw it. They saw it every day in practice. They saw it during the the the, uh, the pickup uh, football that we used to play, the seven on sevens that we used to do uh, in our local community and doing our workouts. So it was only a matter of time. And um, I was more excited for them to see, for the rest of the world to see, um, than um, because you've been working, you've been in the lab, in my case, since my junior year, preparing for this stage. And uh, so I was happy, but I was not surprised at all. So you get selected in the second round of the 2004 NFL draft by the Bengals. You know, take us back to that experience that draft experience you know what was it like to hear your name and then also go pretty high in the second round it was unbelievable um to tell you the truth it was unbelievable looking back and reflecting um it was very humbling and more importantly uh, like i said it just it's a culmination it was a culmination of all the hard work that led to that and i was grateful that i went to the organization i did because again I felt like the system that I was in fit my skill set very well. There was not a whole lot of things that I couldn't do that everything that I did at Maryland transferred over to what I was able to do with the Bengals, which was great. I felt like it was the same defense that we ran, just a different terminology. So I was prepared for the transition to the NFL. I thought uh, our practice schedule was an NFL schedule because Coach Regan came, he was offensive coordinator for the uh, San Diego Chargers, and he brought that element of the professional ranks into the college ranks. So we had a lot of uh, similarities, and um, it was a seamless transition for me, but it was unreal to, ha- to finally live a childhood dream and to play in the NFL. And um, I was just fortunate enough to uh, to live a dream that most people probably wouldn't have, have, have never had an opportunity to do. And with that kind of seamless transition, I mean, you had a huge first year in the league with, you know, you had 103 tackles, 86 of which were solo. You had three interceptions, including one for a touchdown, like, you know, 11 passes deflected, two sacks. You know, I could go on. But, you know, I have to say, looking at the stats, like, I think you kind of got snubbed for a defensive Rookie of the Year with the award going to Jonathan Vilma. How do you how did you feel about that at the time? <laughs> you know what I, I I try to state my case as best as I can based on my performance. And you know what? And this is one thing I've learned about the business of football. Where you're where you the market in which you in plays a plays a role. I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. Jonathan Vilma is in New York, the media capital of the world. So obviously he gets more coverage. No, no excuse. Jonathan Vilma is a heck of a football player. But I'll, I often, friends of mine always say, take my performance, put it in New York. It would have been a no-brainer. But I'm happy that I was able to do what I need to do in uh, Cincinnati. But more importantly, I think one of the things I, 
I took away from Cincinnati is the fact that I never played for accolades. I never did. That was never things. It was never goals of mine. My goal is to make sure I enjoy playing the game. I love playing, and um, I love to compete. I love the chess match. I love the, the physicality. Um, that's what drove me to football. That was my why, not the accolades. I didn't play to be famous. It it helps to get paid to do what you enjoy doing, and that's just a lesson in life. If you if you enjoy something, you're passionate about it, you will be rewarded, and I kind of knew that. Um, but um, the thing that I took away from my time in Cincinnati and just in the league is the relationships that I was able to forge. Um, some of those guys that I played with are very close friends of mine now. We we are on a group chat, uh, constantly talking, sharing ideas, sending pictures of our families, and just reminiscing about old times because that's what it's all about. At the end of the day, once all the lights are out, the cameras are turned off, it's the relationships that are most important, and those are the things you want to take away. The wins and losses are great. But it, those things kind of fade after a while. But for me and for, for some of those guys that I play with, is the stories in the locker room, the relationships, the stories behind the touchdowns of how that happened, and you know the the trips that we took. Those are the things that are that I've taken away from my experience of playing football. And after having so much success on the field, you took that off the field and started the. Madhu Williams Foundation, which for those of our listeners that don't know, it focuses on health and education for unprivileged youth. So why was that so important to you to start that early on in your NFL career? I don't take credit for that. Um, I actually got to give the credit to my parents. And um, they were very instrumental in who I am and still are. Um, But especially my mom, she was somebody that she was my hero. um, And she instilled certain values in me in terms of giving back and reaching back. Um, so when she passed away after my first year of playing football, I wanted to do something that she and I always talked about, which is to always give back. And the two areas I wanted to focus on was health and education. And the two cities that, two places that was very important to both of us were Prince George's County and Freetown, Sierra Leone, which is my birth home. And um, so we was trying to figure out a way to do it. and she always used to sponsor children um, in Sierra Leone in terms of providing school fees. So I decided to build a school in her honor and it's still there almost 15 years later. So I'm very proud of that, um, that we were still been able to maintain something like that, uh, which is just awesome. Uh, but one of the things that's more awesome, even more awesome is the fact that being able to involve the University of Maryland in what I'm doing which is pretty cool and awesome because I never thought in a million years I'd be able to do that. Um, and I'm very grateful for the leadership of the now president, uh, President Daryl Pines. Um, he approached me almost eight, nine years ago and said, hey, I we should do a collaboration with your foundation. And at the time I was taken back not understanding exactly what it is he had in mind, but he pitched the vision to me and I shared my vision in terms of what I wanted. And together, we were able to create this awesome project with the School of um, Engineering, uh, Maryland uh, Sustainability of Engineers and Engineers Without Borders has been wonderful. And um, it's just cool to see students in the University take on ownership of projects throughout the school year. 
And then in the summer, they travel to Sierra Leone and they implement this project, whether it's the clean water, uh, solar, school design, library design, computer technology, just a whole lot of great things that the university and the students, more importantly, have been able to do, but they've been able to touch so many lives um, millions of miles away. And to me, that's that's what it's all about, is utilizing our platform to be able to serve the greater good. Right, and you know, you were able to touch a lot of lives and you know, get the recognition as you know, 2010 Walter Payton Man of the Year, you know, there's so many players within the NFL that have foundations. It's obviously, you know, a tremendous honor. How did you find out and just what did it mean to you to be recognized for that? It's a tremendous honor. Uh, just being a, you know, Walter Payton is one of the greatest football players of all time, but even more so, he's one of the best human beings ever. Um, I never met him, but I've met his family. Uh, just a wonderful representation of who he is and his spirit. So to have an award named after him and to be able to win it, it was unreal. Um, but there were so many other people that was on that on that list who, who were just as deserving. But I just feel very fortunate that I was selected and um, it, it kind of reinforced that it's not just, you gotta continue this, this work and this legacy is bigger than just yourself. It's kind of what I've taken from it and just continue to find a way to do be more efficient and do better and um, i've been very blessed to be able to be in a position to to be able to do those things but i have a lot of help and that's one thing i always uh, like to shout out um, the school of public health for example university of maryland school of public health is another partner that we collaborated for the past six seven years on projects in sierra leone uh, they actually have um, public health without borders and have a sierra leone team which is a great testament. And one of my greatest accomplishments is being be able to combine my alma mater, University of Maryland, our alma mater, I should say, University of Maryland, into what I'm doing, because now you incorporate in a bigger community. And um, it's been awesome. It's been so awesome to be able to see not only the students from University of Maryland uh, travel to Sierra Leone and see the looks on their face, but is when you bring those two people, those two groups of people together who've never met before, and here they are all of a sudden, oh, we've been talking through Skype and WhatsApp for the past six months. It's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, you look so different. It's just, it's unreal just to see it. And um, it's just building connections. And more importantly, let us know that we are not so different from one another. And we are so interconnected in so many ways due to globalization. Um, we're not as far away as we think we are. Right, and then kind of just going back to your career on the field, you know, in 2008, you were on the Minnesota Vikings. Um, and, you know, that team you were on with, you know, two guys you played with. You were on the, you were on the team with Jeff Duke and EJ Henderson, uh, you know, as well as fellow Terp Aaron Henderson. Like, just how much fun was it, you know, being on the same team together, especially, you know, being on defense again with EJ? Oh, it was fun. It was, it was fun. Um, not too many players get to play with teammates from college as well as playing in the pros. And it was such a treat to be able to carry on our relationships from Maryland and play, play together as a pro. Um, I know for Jeff, um, we used to play some golf in Minnesota, um, doing our off time. So that was always great to just be on the, uh, on the golf course, getting to know him and his family. Uh, it's been a wonderful, and then EJ, um, we were, uh, we lived in the same dorm while we were here 
in Maryland and we used to, you know, tell stories about our experiences, even though he was a year ahead of me. But it was just fun. It was great to be in the huddle again and just to look at his eyes and call them defenses and um, and just reflecting back at our times, some of the games that we had uh, together on the field. So I was very fortunate and um, uh, it's it's one of those things that you pinch yourself because not too many people get to experience that. And just to see the growth in those um, in those in those two, like Jeff and and EJ, David. You know the way they evolved as not only football players as they got to the league, but as men, because you saw them as a teenager because they were 19, 18, 20, and now you're seeing them with being married, having a wife, having <laughs> having children. It's it's a different perspective from when you saw them when they were in college. So I was fortunate to see some of that growth along the way. Now, would you say that playing with them in the pros was one of your favorite memories in the NFL, or do you have something that kind of beats that as a memory? Oh, playing in the NFL, my favorite memory. Oh, man. My favorite memory, I would have to say, is my first career interception, which is my first year. Um, and we were playing the Titans, and Billy Volick was the quarterback. The reason why this this – it was special for me. It was because the way I got the interception, the route that Kevin Dyson ran, my entire rookie camp, I was getting beat by Peter 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 Warwick, T.J. Husmanzada, and Chad Johnson. All three of those guys took took their turns beating me on that same route all throughout my rookie camp to the point where Marvin Lewis used to call the play out. They used to call it out, hey, Medill, we're coming at you. So I would know the play is called is coming my way. But it was such it was just a, such a huge level of execution between those three receivers and at the time Carson Palmer was our quarterback that there's nothing I could do. So one of the things that uh, those three guys did for me was they showed me how to play the route. They taught me how to play the route. And it was week eight week six no it was week eight in Tennessee and I was playing in a slot and it just so happened that Kevin Dyson ran one of those routes that I just kept getting beat on throughout the uh, rookie uh, rookie camp and I just remember what those guys taught me say just trail them on the back hip force the quarterback to make a mistake and Billy Bullock ended up throwing it to the back shoulder while Kevin uh, while Kevin Dyson broke inside and I was able to step in front of it. But um, what was so memorable about that play besides catching the interception was once I scored the touchdown, the first guys that was down in the end zone were Chad Johnson, Peter Warwick, TJ Huzmanzada, and uh, Carson Palmer. They were so excited for me to be able to do that. Um, I always remember that because it was so special. Again, it's it's something small, but it meant a lot to me just because the amount of hours that we were spent working on that route after practice was uh, was a lot to be able to get to that moment. So um, it was special. And as a defensive player, you know you don't get a lot of touchdowns. What was your celebration like uh, for that one? I- Tell you the truth, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any. Uh, premeditated, preconceived notion that I was ever going to score and get a touchdown. So I just handed the ball to the ref. And I was just bombarded by those guys in the end zone. And uh, 
I've never been so happy in such a long time because it was just unreal. It was like a dream because I got beat on those routes so many times in practice. So many times. It was and even after practice, those guys were used they just used to, hey man, you need to stay out and work on this because there's no way you should be getting beat on this route. Um and they just used to force me to stay out and work with them, work with them, work with them all throughout training camp all throughout the first year, first part of the season, and for me to be able to get the interception, my first career interception on those routes, on that same route that I worked so many hours on, was very fulfilling. Right, and so I guess now we'll move on to a bit more of recent topics to get your thoughts. You know, first off, you and I have talked just a lot about your support for, you know, Coach Mike Loxley and, you Mm -hmm. know, what you think he can do and is doing to turn the program around. What's something that you think, you know, people should know about him and who he is as a coach that maybe they don't realize? Oh, man. Lox is probably one of the smartest guys that you're ever going to be around. Um, he understands X's and O's. He's very passionate about learning. And I use the word growth mindset just because he's constantly growing. He's evolving. I know him since I've known him since I was a junior in high school and I've stayed in contact with him throughout his various different stops. And that's one consistency that I've seen with him. He never stops learning. And he's very humble in terms of how he go about. He never seems, he don't, he always, as much as he knows, he always going to ask, he's always going to ask people, how can I be better? He's not afraid. And that's the sign of humility because it's one thing for you to be at the top of the game, but it's another thing for you to continue, continuously search for ways to get better. And I enjoy that about Coach Loxley, and um, I've always have. Um, and uh, apart from being smart, he's very competitive, ultra competitive. And he doesn't like to lose very much. And as a matter of fact, I will go out and say he's a sore loser. Um, but part of that is what makes him great. He wants to be great. And um, it's only a matter of time before um, he gets things right here in College Park. And another more recent topic is you spent the final season of your career in Washington. You know, what are your thoughts now on all that's going on with them and changing their franchise name? I actually think it's well overdue, uh, the name change. I think um, prior to me spending my last year there, we heard has been rumblings for years, especially growing up in this area. Um, and I think it's uh, it's a good move for him to go ahead and uh, make the name change. And um, hopefully, you know, like everybody else, I'm anxiously waiting where the new name will be. Um, but it's unfortunate with what has transpired in the front office in terms of the, the recent allegations from the uh, Washington Post articles and things like that. And for my take on that is, you know, it all starts within the leadership within the organization. And you got to be accountable for what, are, what has transpired. And more importantly, you got to, look at yourself in the mirror and say, hey, how can I be better? What did I do wrong? What mistakes did I make? And how can I rectify it and, and, and make sure it doesn't happen again? Uh, more importantly, I think you got to acknowledge, like I said, acknowledge the mistakes. And, to, and secondly, um, be remorseful for what transpired for the hurt that has been caused. And three is you got to make a commitment to be able to make change and bring in people who can actually affect change and not just be a mantra or lip service, but actually changes that's going to reverberate reverberate throughout the organization and i think ron rivera has already started doing that making those change 
but it just can't be just Ron uh, Rivera. It has to be throughout the organization. It means even the it starts with Dan, of course, uh, Coach Rivera, but also even the beer guy in the stadium. Um, that's the type of change that has to affect everybody from the top to the bottom. Um, and um, but I think he he'll get it. Uh, Coach Rivera seemed to be someone who he understands the magnitude and the importance of this. And um, I'm sure that he'll get it right. Yeah, because I think with the magnitude is what a lot of people don't realize is like how common, you know, that is around the league, especially with stuff with, you know, female sports supporters. I don't think a lot of people realize like just how common it is. And I think it's just, you know, good to have that conversation because I don't think a lot of people acknowledge it. And that's the biggest thing. And you hit it right on the head is to to be able to actually have the con- acknowledge that it does exist, acknowledge that there were mistakes that were being made. And then come up with solutions and say, okay, what can I do now? How can I fix this and make sure it doesn't allow, and I don't allow it to happen again. And it's got to be a decision that starts from the top. Um, and with any changes, it only reverberate, it only rever- reverberate through the organization if the leader is very remorseful, is very intentional, and more importantly, he's adhering to the, to the same rules and regulation in which he's enacting. So as far as the team's nickname goes, there's been kind of rumors going around about maybe it being changed to the Red Tails, which would honor the Tuskegee Airmen, maybe the Warriors, or also the Red Wolves. Do you have a favorite among those or another opinion that maybe they could think about? Oh, man. Oh, well, I'm whoever has the trademark rights to any of those names is going to be a very um, rich man. Um, uh, it's going to take some negotiation, whoever has those names, if it, if, if it's already trademarked. Uh, but I'm leaning towards the red tail just because of the historical connotation with it's a ski gear. I mean, um, and what has happened with the, the previous name um, and how it was a derogatory name towards the Native American. I think it would be a good twist in the flip if they can honor something else with the name. But obviously... Um, I'm not a marketing expert and there are people who are skilled, who knows how the names will sound and how he will look, the logo and stuff. It's very, it's very intricate and I don't claim to be an expert in that area other than to give my, my, um, my, my Monday evening quarterback opinion of what I think it should be. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm more leaning to the Red Tails. And, you know, finally, just one last question before you, before you before we let you go. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now how both, you know, a college football season and an NFL season will, you know, be possible with the pandemic and everything that's going on right now. You saw, you know, this week a lot of discussions going on with the NFL and the Players Association about, you know, safety protocol and things like that. What are your thoughts on, you know, the possibility of both of those seasons and, you know, these concerns that players are having? Well, I think those are two different uh, arguments, but under the same concerns. One, with the NFL, those guys get paid; they're professional. Um, but the the underlying theme is COVID is still a threat, whether it's co- collegially or in NFL. But those two entities are they look at things a lot differently. Um, the NFL, they are going to be testing players, uh, from what I read, every day. Uh, to make sure that by at least 5%, they're under the 5% threshold to continue to 
to be able to continue to play. And I was reading something in online. It those tests and we cost the NFL seventy five million dollars just for the first two weeks every day. That is a large absorbent amount of money, and that's what it comes down to. Everything is based on economics. You take a look at the NFL television revenue, their contract is up after the season. So they need to have television ratings to be able to go back to the negotiations, to the negotiating table, to be able to say, hey, this is what the numbers are, the Nielsen ratings, let's negotiate based on the last four or five years. Collegially, different, 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 but still the same premise in the sense that it still revolves around television network dollars. They want the distribution throughout the various different conferences. But even with the games being played, you hear about the Big Ten and the decision that has recently been made for for them to go strictly conference games only. All of those things have an impact on the bottom line, and that's pretty much what it is. And we forget about it, and we all talk about the safety issue, but we also don't talk about the economic impact. For example, if the University of Maryland do not play this year, that's a significant hit on their budget. You, We all, I don't know, I'm not going to generalize, but you take a look at what happened at Stanford. Because of the lack of revenue that took place with uh, the NCAA tournament, certain models, I think four or five sports were cut. But now let's fast forward to, let's say they're not able to play this fall. There's going to be more cuts. So I say all that to say that COVID is real. Even if they are going out there to play, there's still a threat. There's still lives that are being impacted on a day-to-day basis. The things that make it a little bit more scary is, and the collegiate argument is, these kids are supposedly student athletes. You, you and Matt just mentioned to me that you guys will be home taking classes this fall. So what are you telling me is that the student athletes will be on campus taking classes online, but then practicing. They're more at risk. So folks will be looking at this and saying, Madi, what are you talking about? Right. What I'm saying is we have to re- reassess our priorities. There's so much that's happening and I love football. Don't get me wrong. I love, I like to be on the team and, but there's a bigger crisis now than playing a game. There's a, there's, there's a life of death. There are people dying. There are people who have died. And I may be, you know, be extreme with it, but there's bigger things right now than, you know, playing football or being on the field. And that's both for collegially and in the NFL. Right. You know, certainly we both want to be covering football, but there are so many risks. And I guess we'll see, you know, especially in the next few weeks, how that, unfolds. Thank you again so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.